morning, y'all may be seated. Get comfortable. We're going to have some fun today. My name is Larry Babb. I serve as one of the elders here at Bayless. Pastor Evan is in Wisconsin, so I am his stunt double. I consider it a privilege to be able to share God's word with you today. Uh, there in is that, that new song that we just learned is, a, I think, a, a, a great one. The gospel is our sole message and our sole motivation. It's why we do what we do, and it is our hope in Christ that, that keeps us going. If this is your first time visiting with us, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, there's no place better to be on a Sunday morning than with God's people. And if you're a skeptic of the church, you're also in the right place. Uh, we would like to give you a glimpse of what it looks like to uh, wear Christian clothes, to be a follower of Christ, to be able to peel back the curtain of, of mystery and, and public opinion, to see what it actually looks like firsthand, that we are just ordinary people who have an extraordinary hope in Jesus Christ. We're continuing our walk through the Gospel of Mark. Today we're going to look at a... Uh, activity or a, a topic that I'm sure is not at all controversial, Jesus and government. As some background, by the beginning of Jesus's ministry, the Hebrew people had been subject to a, a series of foreign rulers for several centuries, more than 600 years. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and finally now the Romans. It seems like for as long as anyone can remember, they were under the heel of some foreign power that did not recognize their God. These folks were not what you would call benevolent overseers committed to the well-being and prosperity of the Jews. No, they were world conquerors. They're bent on world domination. And that ain't cheap. These powers needed land, people, slaves, money, natural resources. Takes a lot of stuff. And it is in this exploitive setting that we find the Jewish religious leaders and the pro-Roman political followers of the puppet rulers Herod conspiring together against Jesus. They're trying to trap him. Now these groups did not care much for one another. But Jesus represented a threat to both. The Jewish leaders were jealous of Jesus. His demonstration of miracles wisdom and godly authority made him popular among the people. He spoke to them truth that the religious leaders didn't seem to grasp. While the Herodians were scared that if Jesus were to lead an insurrection against Roman rule, their own position of power and influence would go away. So both groups had a reason to discredit 
Jesus to get him out of the way. So after attempting first to ply Jesus with a little bit of flattery, they pose the following trick question. Should we pay Roman taxes? Now here's the catch. If they could get Jesus to say that the Jews did not need to pay taxes to Rome, then they could charge Jesus before the governor, Pilate, with sedition, seeking to undermine and overthrow Roman rule. But on the flip side, if they could get Jesus to say that the Jews should pay Roman taxes, then they could brand Jesus as a traitor to the people as much as any of the despised Jewish tax collectors who were exploiting their countrymen for their own personal profit. So what was Jesus to do? What a conundrum this is. Have you ever found yourself in a position where offering an opinion based on Scripture or taking a God-honoring action puts you at odds with those around you? Maybe family, friends, co-workers, perhaps even a church member. What about having to choose between doing what the government says when it goes against obeying the word of God? Jesus' response illustrates some very important concepts with regard to reconciling our obligations as followers of Christ and our citizenship as Americans. To best navigate this potential conflict, we need to understand the relationship between Jesus and government. First and foremost, God is sovereign. No matter the government, the country, or the period of history, he is above every nation. Every king is ultimately accountable to God, whether they recognize and submit to his authority or not. God declares in Jeremiah 18, verses 7 to 10. This is God speaking to the people through Jeremiah. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. We see in the book of Jonah that God turned away his wrath from the pagan city of Nineveh when the wicked people there repented of their sin. We also see in the book of Habakkuk that God proclaimed he would send the evil Babylonians to conquer Judah because his people had been unfaithful and disobedient. 
So the reason Jesus can speak with authority concerning Roman taxes is that God himself raises up and tears down nations according to his will and his purpose. Nations that honor God will be blessed. And nations that oppose God will not prosper long. In fact, the flawed governments that we find around the world and throughout history are but pale shadow of the kingdom that God will bring about through Jesus. God declares in Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's something worth looking forward to. Amen? The Jews longed for the coming Messiah. They believed he would overthrow the shackles of the foreign powers and reestablish the throne of David, a man after God's own heart. Likewise, we too should look forward with keen anticipation to the establishment of Christ's kingdom. Unlike the governments we see today, there will be no corruption, no scandals, no incompetence, no injustice, and no deceit when Jesus reigns. Until then, we should pray for a godly government and the godly leadership that will display some very distinctive characteristics like rights. If the rights of citizens come from El Elyon, God Most High, a power greater than the government, then those rights cannot be removed by the government. Equality. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, tells us that mankind was made in the image of God. There are no second-class citizens in the nation if every person has the same value and dignity under its government. And accountability. God-fearing people understand they are responsible for their own conduct. Citizens can live free and in peace with very few civil laws if they diligently keep divinely inspired moral laws. But because all governments are made of broken, sinful human beings, we do not always see rights and equality and accountability represented consistently in a God-pleasing manner. Indeed, styles of government and how their citizens are treated vary greatly around the globe and throughout history. So having seen that God is sovereign over the governments of earth, what then is our duty as followers of Jesus to these civil authorities? 
first, and this is the point of Jesus, our text, pay taxes. The silver denarius coin, which was worth about a day's wages in this time, bore the image and the name of the Roman emperor. It was important to him. It was owed to him. Caesar placed value upon the coin. That doesn't mean that we agree with the taxes or even like them. But verse 12 tells us, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's his. Let him have that. But because all wealth ultimately belongs to God, even that which the government issues for commerce. Paul identifies the government as God's representatives. In Romans 13, 6, Paul writes, For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Taxes are the means by which governments run. So we should pray that our leaders use that money as good stewards of God's possessions. And if there is any consolation in having to pay taxes, humorist Will Rogers said it best. Be thankful we're not getting all the government we're paying for. Let that one resonate. Second obligation, we are to obey the laws. We're to submit to the rules of the land as we submit to God. Paul writes in Romans 13, verses 1 to 2, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. We do this for the Lord's sake, that we might present a good witness for Christ. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to the governors sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should, put, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Third obligation, fear and honor. Notice that Jesus does not speak ill of the Roman government. That's not to say that our civil leaders always behave in a God-honoring way, but we are to respect and honor those whom God has chosen to put over us in positions of authority. Paul writes in Romans 13, 7, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. This is also a concept found in the Old Testament. Proverbs 24, 21 says, My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. Exodus twenty two twenty eight 28 
says, you shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. The government is due honor. Second Peter, or First Peter 2, 17. Peter writes, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Was Peter speaking about a kind, compassionate Roman emperor? Most certainly not. This is not honor that is earned, but honor rather that is commanded by God to respect those he has placed in authority. And they are accountable to God for how they conduct themselves. Fourth, we are to do good. As faithful followers of Jesus, we should also work for the good of our nation. Paul writes in Titus 3.1, Remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and be ready for every good work. Likewise, we are to have conduct that reflects favorably upon the person and character of Jesus, whom we serve. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We represent God. Our conduct is a reflection of him and how we believe in him. Finally, pray. No nation rises above its leadership. Some may not rise to meet it, but none will exceed their leadership. We should pray diligently for those who are in authority, that they would do right before God so that the nation may be blessed. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So if God is sovereign over our government, and God says we are to honor those in authority and obey their laws, then what are Christians to do when the government contradicts what God says is good and right? First and foremost, love God with all your being. God, excuse me, Jesus set God as the object of our highest affection. He proclaimed in Matthew 22 that the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all of your mind. Indeed, with everything we have. If there is anything that we love, serve or rely upon more than God, that is an idol and we need to remove it. Second, obey God from the heart. Jesus taught that our love for God results in obedience to his word. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Any moral standard that God established in his word 
takes absolute precedence over the civil laws of man. Third, we will make God our priority. We should pursue God's righteousness, commit to personal holiness, and strive toward spiritual excellence. Matthew 6.33 says this, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Simply put, we want what God wants. And God's will not only rules over our selfless desires, but also the obligations to country. When there's a conflict of duty between God and country, God must come first. This helps to answer some questions that often arise regarding Christians participating in government. First question, should a Christian vote? I'd say, yes, but. What are you voting for? Christians should set aside personal preferences or convenience or what's popular and endeavor to make godly choices when casting their ballots. To illustrate this warning, whenever we see a democracy depicted in the Bible, the winning majority almost always gets it wrong. Because people are making decisions based on emotion or desire, but not godly wisdom. Building a golden calf in Exodus 32 seemed like a good idea at the time, and everybody was for it. The spies who were sent into Canaan voted 10 to 2 not to enter the promised land in Numbers 13. Well, you'll have 40 years to think about that wrong decision. How about Absalom winning the hearts of Israel and overthrowing his father, King David, in a civil war? In 2 Samuel 15, didn't work out so well. So we want to, in a democracy, a democratic republic, not abuse our voice, but use it to make godly decisions. Question two, should Christians even serve in political office? It's a dirty, nasty job. There's compromise, there's corruption. There can be, yes, but Joseph served in Egypt and was so capable, God blessed the work of his hands without compromising his faith that God raised Joseph from a slave to number two behind Pharaoh in Egypt. Pretty good career path. Daniel served the kings of both Babylon and Persia. Men and women of moral integrity are very much needed to serve in their cities, their states, and their nations, and should not be dissuaded from doing so as long as they rely upon God to protect their hearts, keep a clean, pure heart, keep clean hands in all that you do. And a third question, should Christians serve in the military or perform other civic, in other civic areas? Absolutely. Christians are to be a blessing to their community. In Jeremiah 29, 
the Lord commands the Hebrew exiles. They're on their way to 70 years in captivity in Babylon. And God directs them to do this. The Lord commanded the Hebrew exiles in Babylon to settle down and make lives for themselves. The Israelites were to seek the welfare of the city where they were captive and pray on its behalf. For in its welfare, they would find their own. As such duties come as too high of a price, a Christian must obey God rather than men. This means calling out evil when we see it and working against it, even if it draws criticism, if it draws fire from our culture or our government. For example, in Daniel 3, three Jewish boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, faced a death sentence if they did not worship the golden image set up by the Babylonian king. Their response, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. God blessed the faithfulness of these men and rescued them from a fiery death without so much as a single hair singed or the whiff of smoke on their clothing to the amazement of the king. But they were willing to die rather than compromise their relationship with God. Now earlier... We looked at rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Certainly Christians ought to be a blessing to the country in which they reside. We should contribute financially. We should respect the laws, honor those in authority. We should pray for our leaders, serve our communities well, and in every way be a positive witness for Christ. But we've not yet fully explored what it means to render unto God the things that belong to God. In that regard, I think it's a fascinating choice that Jesus has chosen to use a denarius coin to deliver the most important illustration in his lesson. Coins were fashioned by striking a piece of metal, in this case silver, between two plates of a harder material, impressing the reverse image of those plates onto the coin. The coins produced in this way are called a type. It comes from the Greek word meaning a mark, as if the result's the effect of a blow. The plates used to mark the coins in such a way were called the antitype, coming from the Greek word meaning a representation, as in like a stamp. So I have an illustration. You're not going to be able to see it. So I bought one of my granddaughters. She's a Play-Doh. Bet you didn't think you'd see that in the message. And I don't have a coin to mint, but I do have this very attractive butterfly 
sun catcher that one of my granddaughters did. And to illustrate this, we have a, a better version up here. We're going to take what we're going to call a coin. Don't tell the pastor why there's Play-Doh on his pulpit. We're going to stamp that kaboom. Now I have a type coming from the antitype. A little more visible here. Although every coin, the type, comes from the same stamp, the antitype, there are variations among the individual coins. Coins may have a different shapes to their edges. They may be, some may be struck harder and be better defined in detail, where others are struck lighter, and their details are more faint, a little harder to see. But there's a really neat relationship between the coin, the type, and the stamp, the antitype. If you see a coin, you know there's a stamp that made it. It is obvious that every coin came from the same stamp. And no one would ever confuse the coin for being the stamp. They are similar, but they are distinct and different. Where a coin may have defects, the type, the stamp, the antitype is perfect. This is what it should be. It is the standard, the antitype, that the coin, the type, reflects in imperfect fashion. The Daenerys coin bears the likeness of Caesar. He issued the coin, he values the coin, he is due the coin. The coin belongs to Caesar. But there's an additional application to Jesus' illustration we want to be sure not to miss. The denarius represents another type. Can you guess what that is? People. Every man, woman, and child is made in the image of God. In all his creation, God values people most. And yet, people as a type are unfinished. We still lack one thing, one last stamp, one finishing antitype to seal us, to make us God's own. That missing piece is Jesus. By accepting in faith Jesus' death on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins, the antitype of redemption is stamped onto your heart and mind, completing our type with the proclamation, in Christ I trust. There's no mistaking any of us for Jesus the antitype, but with the decision to accept his free gift of salvation and by his saving grace, our coin, our type, begins to more accurately reflect the stamp, the antitype that is Jesus. So in regarding the final question, what are the things of God? 
if you're a Christian, you've turned your life over to Jesus. You are his to command for his purpose and for his kingdom. Render unto God the things that belong to God, your whole self. And if you have not yet made a decision to follow Jesus, I'd invite you to consider that at this time. Would you belong to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Would you accept today the free gift of salvation and be reconciled with your Creator, settling the matter of your eternal destination once and for all, wanting, desiring to be claimed by God? If so, one of, I or one of the other elders would love to speak to you after the service about your decision and what it would take going forward. Right now, let's close in prayer, dear Heavenly Father. Lord, you're a great and awesome God. Lord, I thank you for so much. For, for Jesus, Lord, who came to save us, Lord. We thank you for his handling rightly of the government and, and the, the questions that were posed to him, Lord. How that reflects on how we should deal with our government, Lord. Our obligations to them under you. But also you, first and foremost, Lord, have our allegiance Lord, let us strive to, as Christians, to accurately reflect the person and character of Christ, to proclaim his redemptive work on a world that desperately needs to be reconciled to him. Touch our hearts, Lord. Bring us closer to you. We love you, Lord, and we come in the name of Jesus. Amen.